Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Beverly J. Potter Mintz was born on December 5, 1963, and went by Jay. At the age of 23, Jay lived at 34 Dresser Lane in Leland, North Carolina, with her two- and four-year-old sons, her cousin Angela and Angela's daughter. Jay was a waitress at a restaurant in nearby Wilmington and was described as quiet, kind-hearted, and an amazing mother to her two boys. She had recently separated from her husband, William Mintz, who was stationed in Germany. On February 23, 1987, her son Andrew, just one day shy of turning two, was home with Jay, while her four-year-old son BJ was with his grandmother. Jay's mother, Lorene Potter, called around 9.40 a.m. to let her know that a man would be coming by the house to look at a waterbed she had for sale. The classified ad in the local newspaper had initially been listed under Jay's number, but when the free offer ended, Jay took out another ad using her mother's number. Unfortunately, she had not informed her mother that the bed was already sold, but the man Lorene spoke with already had directions to Jay's house. She hung up the phone so she could wait for the man to arrive and inform him of the bad news. Sadly, this was the last time Lorene ever spoke to her daughter again. When Lorene arrived at the home later that day, she found Jay lying on her bed with a pillowcase over her face. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. Thankfully, Andrew was left unharmed but had witnessed the attack. He told Lorene that the mean man had hurt his mommy and made her cry. When investigators arrived, they found a newspaper clipping on the waterbed with the listing for the waterbed circled. Investigators soon learned that once Jay placed the classified ad, she began receiving calls from strangers who would sexually taunt her. One man even showed up at her home and wrote in the gravel driveway the words, I love you, Jay. And another man left a single red rose for her at the restaurant where she worked. While Jay was always polite to the men who were giving her unwanted attention, her cousin Angela, who also lived at the house, had become quite concerned. A week before the murder, Angela walked by her room and saw that Jay was upset. She stopped and asked what was wrong, and Jay responded that she had a nightmare about a strange man who was trying to kill her. Angela felt that the nightmare was more of a premonition. In 2000, investigators realized that there were similar cases all over the country, but none had the evidence to find the killer. Thankfully, DNA was collected from Jay's crime scene, and while CODIS didn't return any matches, it's a prime suspect for genetic genealogy. The house Jay was murdered in has since been destroyed, and an apartment complex now sits on the property. Lorreen never got over the death of her daughter and eventually died at the age of 63 from a heart attack after years of grieving. 
Unfortunately, as of 2023, Beverly's murder remains unsolved. Jamie Fraley was born on March 5, 1986. At the age of 22, Jamie lived in an apartment on Lowell Bethesda Road in Gastonia, North Carolina, and was engaged to Ricky Simons Jr. Simons wasn't exactly an upstanding citizen and had been arrested several times and was even sentenced in early 2007 to 15 months in a state prison for theft. During that time, Jamie continued the relationship and would even visit him in prison. She was also a part-time student at Gaston College and had plans to become a substance abuse counselor. On April 7, 2008, Jamie came down with a horrible stomach virus and had to seek treatment at a local hospital twice that day. However, she didn't have a driver's license and had to rely on friends and family for transportation. At the hospital, Jamie was diagnosed with the stomach flu and sent home. The next day, around midnight, Jamie called her mother, Kim, and said she wanted to go back to the hospital for a third time. Kim offered to take her, but Jamie declined, saying she already had a ride. At 1.30 a.m., Jamie called her friend to say that she was going back to the hospital and that a man was giving her a ride, but she never said exactly who that was. After hanging up the phone, Jamie was never heard from again. On April 9, 2008, a healthcare provider arrived at Jamie's apartment to take her to her appointment with the Social Security Administration, but found her door locked. When Jamie failed to answer calls to her cell phone, the provider left but didn't notify her family for two days. On April 11th, Kim called the police and asked them to perform a welfare check on her daughter. When an officer arrived at her apartment, he found no signs of forced entry or a struggle. After numerous attempts to reach Jamie via her cell phone, Kim, Jamie's aunt, and her cousin entered the apartment and found her purse, wallet, keys, and identification. They also found that she had vomited in several places, indicating the severity of her stomach issues. Strangely, they noticed the shoelaces were missing from her favorite pair of shoes, which struck them as odd. Besides the shoelaces, her cell phone was the only other thing that appeared to be missing. At that point, they called the police and reported her missing. Once investigators were involved, they discovered that Jamie never checked into the hospital the third time. In the meanwhile, her family continued to call her cell phone. Eventually, a man who said he worked for the cable company answered and said he found the phone while repairing some lines. He said the location was at the intersection of New Hope Road and Hudson Boulevard, about a mile and a half from Jamie's apartment. It appeared to have been thrown from a moving vehicle. When investigators looked at it, they found several calls were made at 4.30 a.m. on the morning Jamie disappeared, but none connected. Those calls were later determined to have been dialed from her list of recent contacts and therefore most likely unrelated to the case. However, there was a call around 5 a.m. that interested investigators, but they were unable to determine who it was from. As for her fiancé, he was still incarcerated at the time of her disappearance and was not considered a suspect. Eventually, the fiancé's dad, Ricky Dale Simons Sr., became a person of interest. He lived in the same apartment complex and was said to be obsessed with her. Investigators asked him to take a polygraph exam, but he refused. 
He had even driven Jamie to the hospital on one of her previous visits the day before she disappeared. They also learned that he had been convicted of manslaughter for strangling his girlfriend in the 1980s. Two months after Jamie disappeared, Simon Sr. was found dead of an apparent heat stroke in the trunk of a former girlfriend's car, Kim Springer, who had filed a restraining order against him. Police theorized that Simons had used the keys to let himself into the trunk to ambush Kim at some point with plans to let himself out with the emergency latch. However, when heat exhaustion set in, he most likely panicked, forgot to pull the emergency latch, and died. Unfortunately, any information he had about Jamie's disappearance went to the grave with him. In 2015, convicted murderer Jerry Case confessed to Jamie's murder, but he was incarcerated at the time of her disappearance, so the police do not believe his confession is credible. Sadly, as of 2023, Jamie has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Kent Jacobs was born on March 16, 1960, and grew up in Hope Mills, North Carolina. At the age of 41, Kent, who had an intellectual disability, was described as having a childlike mind and was living and working in a group home in the Hope Mills area. He would also spend weekends at his mother's house in the nearby Colonial Heights neighborhood. He loved ACDC, rock concerts, the Dallas Cowboys, and Harley Davidson, and generally walked wherever he went, no matter the weather but he could be very naive at times and was known to accept rides from strangers. On March 10, 2002, Kent, as usual, planned to walk to his childhood neighborhood near McDonald Road and Interstate 95, just two blocks from where he lived. He was last seen that evening getting into a small car at the intersection of Brooklyn Circle and US 301. The group home had a 6 p.m. curfew, a rule that Kent had never broken, that is, until that day. After failing to show up, Kent was never seen again. He was known for being very routine, and when he suddenly vanished, it raised serious red flags with his family. An extensive search of the region began, but in the end, it produced no clues as to his whereabouts. Five months later, in August 2002, investigators announced that Kent's disappearance was being investigated as a presumed homicide. They had received a credible tip from an informant who identified the suspect in his disappearance and revealed where his body was located. This led investigators to a piece of property at 5437 Jackson Street, not far from where he was last seen. However, the search turned up nothing. In 2010, another tip came in stating that Kent was in a refrigerator on a piece of property located at 217 Hulon Street. The property was owned by a man named Clifton Jones, who died a year before the search began. He had a number of trailers and tenants living on his property, along with a backhoe that he used to bury trash and broken-down appliances. The person who provided the tip said that Jones had actually confessed to burying Kent inside a refrigerator on the property. The search efforts had covered about 60% of the property when it was all of a sudden halted due to environmental concerns. This was most likely due to the appliances that Jones had buried. The search finally resumed years later, but nothing was found. On the day Kent vanished, he was paid $200. 
it's theorized that someone, possibly Clifton Jones, knew he had the money and murdered him for it. Even in 2002, that wasn't a lot of money, but I guess people will do anything for drugs. Kent's brother believes a certain group of individuals who've been in and out of jail over the years likely murdered Kent. However, none of those people have ever been publicly identified. Kent's elderly mother still puts an electric candle in the window every night, hoping her son will find his way home one day. However, as of October 2023, Kent has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Linda K. Runyon Meeker was born in Roseboro, North Carolina on December 8, 1964. Linda graduated from Lakewood High School and then got a job working as a secretary for Du Bois Steel. At the age of 19, Linda was still living in Roseboro and had been married nearly one year to her husband, Howard Meeker. On June 18, 1984, just one day before her first wedding anniversary, Linda failed to show up for work and never called in. Her sister, Barbara Runyon, and nephew found out and decided to go look for her. When they arrived at the home around 6 p.m., they found her door unlocked. While this was typical in the 80s, her family noted that she always kept her door locked. When they entered the home, they sadly found her nude body lying on the bathroom floor. She had tragically been stabbed to death. Investigators said while the murder itself was sloppy and reckless, the killer had taken great care with her body, covering the stab wounds with a washcloth. It's believed whoever stabbed her was trying to stop the bleeding. DNA was recovered from her body and didn't match her husband's DNA. Investigators do not believe she was sexually assaulted and instead believe she had consensual sex shortly before her death. The theory about her affair came from investigators on a show called NC Mystery. However, on findagrave.com, it's written that the portrayal of Linda on the episode of NC Mystery was not an accurate portrayal of the real Linda. This tells me that friends and family do not believe she was having an affair. However, when the SBI picked up the case, they found a co-worker of Linda's named Jay that she allegedly had an affair with. The man even admitted that the couple had made out a few times while at work. On December 15, 1987, the SBI agent took out a search warrant to obtain 20 milliliters of blood from the suspect. It's unknown if his DNA was ever tested against the DNA found at the scene. However, while they had circumstantial evidence against Jay, the district attorney decided not to bring the case in front of a grand jury. Three days before the murder, her husband Howard was washing Linda's car and found a love letter from Jay. On the day of the murder, Howard said that when he left for work that morning, Linda was still asleep in bed. He claims that was the last time he saw her alive. Also on the day of the murder, Howard strangely never came home and was finally located by police over 10 miles away in Clinton at a friend's house at 9 p.m. Interestingly, officers in the nearby Sampson County located a deaf-mute homeless man who had a folded-up newspaper with Linda's picture on it, along with a knife in his pocket. They obtained his DNA and sent it off for testing, and the lab requested additional DNA. This made investigators feel like they were on the right track. However, they were unable to locate the man again and had to enlist the FBI. The FBI finally tracked him down to Tennessee, where he had died and his body cremated. 
Due to this, they were unable to retrieve additional DNA. Investigators no longer believe this man was involved. As for Jay and Howard, could Howard have come home early and discovered signs that Jay had been there and then murdered Linda? Could Jay have murdered her because she regretted her actions and decided to call off the affair? Or was there no affair at all and the murder was done at random? Hopefully, the DNA in the case can be sent off for forensic genetic genealogy, but as of 2023, her case remains unsolved. On September 19, 1990, a cleanup crew located an unknown female's decomposed remains along Interstate 40, approximately 15 feet down an embankment east of the New Hope Church Road exit. It was concluded that she died from strangulation, and investigators believe she was murdered a week before her body was dumped. When they found her, she was wearing a pink shirt with white bunny rabbits on bicycles and was believed to be about 20 years old. Also, the fact that the victim's socks were very clean and the absence of footwear indicates her killer may have taken her shoes as a souvenir. Investigators in 1990 created a bust of the Jane Doe by applying forensic facial reconstruction techniques to a model of her skull. Despite intensive investigation and follow-up on hundreds of leads, her identity and that of her killer remained a mystery. However, police noted that there was a possible link between this case and other murders that a taxi driver had committed. The man who was suspected of murdering women in the same, similar fashion as the Jane Doe was eventually arrested in Guilford County. Orange County officers then requested an interview with him, but he took his own life instead. A witness came forward and reported seeing the Jane Doe walking along I-85 near Highway North Carolina 62 in a Wormata Inn. She may have also been seen at a truck stop in Alamance County. For some reason, her remains were cremated and buried at sea. Investigators then spent years trying to identify the woman using software to reconstruct what she may have looked like, and in 2018, they released a digital illustration of the woman. Her identity remained a mystery for 33 years until June 2020, when investigator Dylan Hendricks took over the case. Hendricks then sent a degraded hair fragment to Astria Forensics for DNA extraction. With the help of forensic genealogist Leslie Kaufman, Hendrick was able to track down the paternal cousins of the victim. Finally, in September 2023, the Jane Doe was identified as Lisa Coburn Kessler, who had been missing for more than 30 years. Lisa spent much of her life near Athens, Georgia, but not much else is known about her. Now that Lisa has her identity back, hopefully they can find her killer, but as of 2023, this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.